Hello, my name is Philip Camella, and today we're going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Collapse of Materialism, Philip Camella. So this show, again, is going to be a little different. This time I am rebroadcasting an interview I did with Tom Evans on The Zone Show out of the UK where we talk about some of my own thoughts and the collapse of materialism. And as some listeners know, I have my own opinions on some of the topics that are expressed in the show. And so the Tom Evans Show provides sort of a forum for me to vent a little bit about what I think about where science is heading and what we need to do about it and what is really practical and doable in the upcoming years and decades as we seek to change the way we look at the world. So listen in. Tom does a great job here in probing some of my ideas and also I will add that Tom Evans will be a guest on my own show at some time in May. So listen in. This is a little different. Hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening. So hi, I'm Tom Evans and welcome to another edition of The Zone Show. And I'm really, really thrilled today to be speaking with Philip Camella, the author of The Collapsed Materialism, Visions of Science, Dreams of God. Hi, Philip. How are you doing? Great, great, Tom. Nice, nice talking to you today. Fabulous. Now listen, I'm going to talk about the book and all the, the, the stuff in it, but... Um, you might have detected um, by by reading my book, I'm one of these people that um, messes around with time and I write books really, really quickly. So my latest book, for example, I started last December and I had the book in my hand uh, mid-February. Mid, um, Your book, however, you started it 25 years ago or so. <laughs> it yeah. had quite a long gestation period. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, it started off as a college paper. Yeah, and it's one of those things. A lot of people in college you have these high ambitions, and but not the skills to execute them, and that's sort of what happened. And uh, I left it unfinished, and I, I needed to get more training, schooling. So I got my degree in philosophy. I went to law school, took a hiatus or two, and then I went back to writing about twenty years ago. And uh, and it's it's one of these things where you learn as you write. You know, Tom. I mean, it's it's part of it. It's sort of I mean, one of the things that you you point out in your book and in your shows is is sort of the channeling, which I think is related to inspiration, by the way. And some and sometimes you just have to wait for it to come, and then once it comes out, you know, and then it's a lot of improvising, and and so it really it really is sort of a lifelong project. Uh, I'm happy to say that I do have another book uh, just about done, and that one didn't take me as long. So, so I think the second one goes faster, hopefully. But you know what? Um, a couple of things then is one is what's a bit strange then is that um, as a practicing attorney, you've maybe got a slightly strange career to be writing a book about this subject. Well, in some ways, yes; in some ways, no. I mean, I think that there is a relationship between law and science. 
in that law is based upon uh, logical principles that are applied with precedent. In other words, what others have decided. So we have our authorities. And law is very much into critical thinking. Uh, I tell people that when I look at any idea, whether it's coming from a religious leader or a science leader, I'm looking at the evidence they have to support it and the logical structure of the argument. I'm looking for the evidence, and that's that's as a lawyer. Uh, and so I take that same attitude when I'm looking at the theories of modern science or the Bible or the Quran, whatever it is. And so I try to be consistent with that mindset. So I, I really like to say that I use the skills of a lawyer in my work in this uh, new spirituality realm, whatever we're calling this. Um, so it really, to me, it's it's a it's a uh, aspect of law. It's it's not it doesn't contradict it. It's it it's something where the skill set does help me. I think in structuring my arguments. Oh, fabulous! Well, isn't that science, materialistic science? Um, it's got some good things going for it, hasn't it? Because if it wasn't for science, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now over Skype. Yeah, I think that what I what I have a problem with is the assumptions of modern science, which is the the fact that in order to conduct science, uh, the materialists believe that they have to assume that there's an independent world of matter that operates outside of the mind, and that creation comes towards us. So this is more of a metaphysical assumption that I'm attacking. We do live in a real world. We do live in a world that it's ordered, that is there for us, that is harmonized, that gives us all the, the benefits and, and the technologies of modern science. I would not throw those out, you know, like you said before, the baby with the bathwater. But we need to use technology to further the interest of humankind, not to defeat or destroy humankind and the environment. And this, this is where the change has to come. In other words, let's let's retool ourselves to direct technology towards such things as feeding the hungry, sheltering the homeless, giving some everybody something productive to do, making peace, not war. Very sort of optimistic, but I think this is the kind of practical change that comes about when we shift our perspective from a matter-first way of looking at things to a mind-first or consciousness-first. So that's really what I'm trying to do is shift that base perspective. Okay, so so you like me, you like science and you like all the benefits it brings, and it, 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 we're taking a scientific and a, a kind of legalistic and a, a logical uh, approach to things allows us to uh, reach forward. So maybe it's maybe what it is with your book then is that even though you started it 25 years ago, the time is now for the wisdom in it to be shared. So it is right that it took 25 years to come out. Yeah, I think that there is something to be said for waiting for the time of, a, of, of an invention or waiting for, you know, without being too esoteric, waiting for the consciousness to be at a certain level where it could grasp the argument. Um, Ray Kurzweil uh, has a, a you know, number book. He's the one that wrote the book, The Singularity is Near, and he is, he is the one who believes that um, that humans will eventually merge with machines, and of course I think differently. But he has this one point he makes, is that sometimes uh, people invent things before 
the culture is ready to accept them. People are ahead of their times. You know, there's Babbage who invented the computer back in the 1900s and people weren't ready for it. There is a time for things to come out. And I'm, I think that now is the time, Tom, where, where uh, we are ready to accept a logical argument in favor of a new way of looking at things. Because what I'm trying to do is to give sense to some of the developments in the quote-unquote new spirituality or new consciousness movement. I'm trying to give truth to such things as parapsychology, near-death experiences, the placebo effect, phantom limbs, all these things that are sort of outliers. And I'm saying, hold it, folks, there's not only do the, does, the, does the evidence show that these things are true, but they make sense in a mind-centered world. They're part of the fabric of our reality. Let's stop pretending as if they're some strange outliers in a material world. They're part of a dream world. So that's really what, that's, that's really what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to, to, um, to unify these different phenomena into, into a different way of looking at things where we incorporate all human experience into one viewpoint instead of discarding some of them because they don't fit the materialistic model. And unfortunately, you're not you're not alone in that because there's some uh, fantastically maverick scientists like Rupert Sheldrake who, uh, who whose work is exactly in this space, and uh, he comes up against a lot of antagonism. And why do you think it is that scientists get so defensive when the whole point of science is to, is to research and to to know the unknown? Well, well, first of all, that's a, that's a great question, and I think that that is probably one of the key uh, questions that we're confronting right now. Why, why this this uh, this antagonistic reaction? And I haven't completely figured it out by any by any stretch of imagination. I do have some thoughts, um, and here are here are some of them. Number one. I think a lot of it is the reaction against creationism. I think that science has gotten itself into a dichotomy where they believe that anybody that disagrees with the theories of science, particularly things like the Big Bang or evolution, are all of a sudden creationists. And creationism is, is, is uh, an adversary, the mortal enemy of science. And so I think that it's sort of like this knee-jerk reaction to put it to put people like Rupert Sheldrake um, and like Michael Behe into this creationist camp. Um, the other thing, I think there's a territorial issue here, Tom. I think that there there's a certain sense here, and I'm putting this very nicely, where if you're king of the hill, you don't want any intruders on your kingdom. And I think there is a certain amount of territorialism. They don't want to be challenged. They they have it good. They have the professorships, the grants, the degrees, the Nobel Prizes. And so that's why this is going to take a little time. <laughs> there is a, there's a major edifice that needs to be taken down. And, and you know, it's, it's like uh, the Jimmy Cliff song, the harder they come, the harder they fall. <laughs> um, I, I think that that's what makes it challenging, but it also makes it fun and interesting, too. I mean, it's, it, this, is, this, is a, this is going to be 
I think, a great moment when we go through this revolution, when we, and it actually happens. It's going to be an amazing event, um, magical, as you would put it. So, so I'm look. So I, I think those are the two key things. Yeah, and, and I, I found discovered that because um, my, my my entry into this world was one of just pure personal interest in my mid forties. Uh, someone said you look really stressed, Tom, which I was. Uh, and uh, I'd been working in high tech for 25 years and um, you know, very much a materialistic scientist and I studied electronics at university so I got a good grasp of how how to, 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 to get things working. I was a TV engineer so I know how light gets converted into electrons and, and then electrons get converted back into light and all that and I was fascinated by that, what I thought was magic at the time. But intuitively, I felt that um, when I started to meditate and weird things started to happen, that the, the worldview was kind of wrong. And I, my, my research went backwards in time, as I'm sure you did. I went to, to the mystics and sages and, and some of the ancient wisdom, and I discovered that a whole model that could be really brought up to date existed already. So we haven't even got to start from scratch. The ancients knew how stuff worked. They just didn't have the mathematics and the language to describe it that we have now. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. This a lot of what my book is is an updating of the ancient spiritual tradition. It's it's an updating of the Vedanta, uh, the idealistic philosophers, and even Plato. It's 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 really putting it in modern language. I mean, if you go back two thousand years, when someone went around and say we are all one, we all come from a divine essence, that would be a perfectly normal thing to say. I mean, Paramedes, one of the early Greek philosophers, thought all is one, that numbers are the, are the uh, essence of the world. And uh, another one thought that all is mind. I mean, this, this, is not, this is not an original, this is really not an original idea, but it seems so, so radical in our current worldview because we are taught to separate the mind from the world. You know, and, and this is a Newtonian assumption where, where Newton began that process of observing the heavens, observing the regular operations of the heavens and seeing that, it, that the heavens conform to mathematical formulas. And therefore, it, would, it was proving successful to assume that there's a separation between observer and observed and let's see how far we can go in cataloging and mapping the workings of the external world. And then I think that jumping ahead all the way to quantum theory teaches that we're not separate from the world. That's the whole point of quantum theory. Yet we're sitting here in this still this divided mindset where we're, where we're quantum theorists on one hand, but we're uh, – but we're materialists on the other hand, you know. So we're we have to be coming close to the tipping point. And I guess that's that, that's a because we live in a duality. I guess. Yeah, yeah. I think I think we are. I think we do have one foot in each camp: one foot in the spiritual camp and one foot in the materialistic camp. I mean, there's all sorts of metaphors, illustrations of that. I mean, we have we have uh, scientists. How many scientists go to church? A lot of them go to church. Or or the synagogue or whatever. So that's that's an example of they're split. Even though they're materialists, and you should be an atheist if you're a materialist. Why are you going to church? And then we have people who get Nobel prizes for quantum theory, yet they go back and they talk about finding the God particle in the Large Hadron Collider. In the, in the Large Hadron Collider, why are you looking for a particle when you've proven? 
that particles don't exist. So, so it really, it really is a strange, strange um, setup we have right now. But this is all, this is all part of the process. I think. I think we, it's a complicated network of ideas and theories and beliefs, and we're just sort of weaving ourselves through it. You know, we're just sort of working ourselves through it. And you could use the word evolution, uh, and I think that fits in well. We're sort of evolving. We're understanding more about who we really are. It strikes me then, you know, this this great um, quandary that science seems to have got itself into, where the mass doesn't add up, and there seems to be all this missing dark matter and dark energy in the universe. Right. I'm I'm not qualified to 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 judge what it's all about, but it just seems to me logical and intuitive at the same time that the dark matter and the dark energy has to be the consciousness of the universe. Well, I mean, my my spin on it is that. Dark matter and dark energy don't really exist. I mean, the reason why we don't see dark matter is because it doesn't exist. I mean, remember, the scientists assume dark matter because there's not enough mass to hold together the the spiral galaxies. I mean, that's where the whole thing started. Vera Rubin uh, looked at the spiral galaxies, and and she did the math, and she said, hey, those spirals should not be held into place if... The only mass in that galaxy was what we could observe because the math says and Newton's gravity laws say that the spirals should, should fling off into space or, or should flatten out. So they assumed that there was actually more, more matter in there. And what I'm saying is that you're looking at a picture, a beautiful picture of the sky, of the heavens, that gravity does not rule the cosmos. What rules the cosmos is beauty, is aesthetics. And, and so you're looking at a picture. You're not looking at an impersonal created uh, universe uh, that, that was just formed by these, by these uh, random laws. You're looking at a picture of the dream of God. So I'm, I'm, re- I'm very radical on this, but when you think about it, the evidence supports my view as opposed to science's view because nobody could find the matter anyways. So, so it's just, it's just the, but, but to your point, it is all consciousness. It's the same thing. So we're basically saying the same thing. It, it, is, a, it is consciousness. I think the universe is a outgrowth of consciousness and therefore consciousness controls, not these impersonal laws of physics. That's where I'm very radical, but I'm at least I'm consistent. And when you talk about consciousness, you've got some very um, uh, fantastically eloquent chapter titles in your book, and I was drawn to this one here, chapter 38. The melody came first, the origin of life. Could you unpack that for us? Yeah, I mean, this, this is something that uh, I think is a... I, I consider it to be sort of a breakthrough uh, because, you know, spending so much time on a book and th- thinking about this, uh, one of the biggest mysteries is, let me, let's, let's take the DNA molecule. How is it possible that a random world, that the Darwinian evolution would create something like the DNA molecule? The DNA molecule is something that the more you look at it, the more amazing it is. It is a dictionary of life. It is a spiral staircase molecule where the corresponding 
molecules are in code and the codes speak a language and that language translates into protein and protein translates into bodies. It is a dictionary of life. How is that possible? And this is something that scientists don't, the material scientists don't answer. They just assume it's true. And what I'm saying is that if you're creating a world and you're God, you're going to spin out the form first. You're going to spin out the body first. The dream spins out, projects an image. When you drill into that image, when you drill into that image, you will find that the internal parts harmonize because they're looking up to the whole. They're part of a harmonious whole. So the melody comes first and the notes follow. Scientists are looking for where do these notes come from that sing a song. I'm saying the song came first and the, and the notes come afterward. Something you may have to think about a little bit, but to me that explains the internal harmony of our world. It's sort of like that book, The Fantastic Voyage by Isaac Asimov, where he was in the body, you know, looking around at how how everything was all organized. It explains the organization of life and the organization of matter. So I I I, I think that's that is to me a much much better way to understand it because now we say, huh, it's that internal harmony didn't come from a random creation. It was it was a it's sort of like the the tail of a comet. It's trailing behind the melody that came first. So I don't know if that if that did it, but that's that's the melody. That's the melody came first. So if you were to, um, uh, you're probably like me, not a, a, a mathematician at all, as your your first um, your first calling. But if you were to write the maths of the universe, the the math, as you say in America, so we have, we put an S on it over in in the UK, the math of the universe. Would some of the terms in that equation be consciousness and awareness and mind? Yeah, I think that you see, David Hume, who was probably one of the, considered the top three thinkers of all time, uh, a British uh, philosopher from the uh, 18th and 19th century, he examined why, why there is order in the world, and he came to the conclusion that is, it is our need for order. We want order. We want there to be causation, one event following another. It's a need that we have. What I'm saying is that consciousness does come first. We have, a, we have woken up to a real world. We have a driving desire for organization, for order. It is consciousness that is at the root of order. What is the limit of order? It's mathematics. Mathematics is the limit of order. And when you think about it, Tom, in my mind, that's the only way to explain the mathematical order of the universe. Ask any scientist, how, whatever their pedigree, where did the laws of nature come from? And they're not going to be able to answer the question. The best they're going to say is the multiverse. There must be a, you know, an infinity of other universes that aren't as organized as ours. So if you really want to explain the order, the mathematical order, you've got to begin with consciousness and our need for order. And, and so it, maybe it sounds, you know, it's very radical, but this is why I cite Hume. Hume started it. He inspired me on that point. 
And so if you just carry that to our current day where people are looking at consciousness as being the, the source, now we have a reason, a basis to say, hey, we must be the source of natural law and, and of mathematics. So the answer to your question is yes. I think consciousness is, is the source of the equation. And does that put a special onus on us then? Because we, as far as we know it, we're the only self-aware um, entities in the whole universe. My, my personal view is there must be some more out there because the universe is so big. But as far as we know it, we're, we're the only sentient life in the universe. We could even argue that maybe dolphins and whales uh, would have a consciousness maybe even greater than ours, just working on a different level. But does that put an onus on us to um, kind of come up with the goods? Because we could... Um, we could change things, couldn't we, in a, in a really beneficial way. Right, right. That is, the responsibility lies with us. Imagine that we are really God, that we are really the source. Imagine that the people who, who believe, like me, that consciousness is at the root are right. That means this is our world, our responsibility, and our duty and obligation to to do the best we can to make this a better place. It's right in front of us, and this is our job. So I think it increases responsibility. And, Tom, I think a lot of what we see with science and our current culture is that we're not ready to accept the responsibility. We're not – We global warming is an example. It's sort of almost a metaphor for this where we're seeing more people care about the fate of the world, the fate of weather and climate, and we're starting to more and more people looking at sustainability. Can this planet sustain 7 billion people? We're starting to see that come out, that it's, it's, it's becoming more front and center. So to me, this is showing that gradually we're coming to understand that if we don't do it, no one's going to do it for us. If we don't make a better world, no one's going to come down from heaven and do it for us. So I do think it dramatically increases the responsibility, but it also increases the power and, and the potential for future improvement because now it's within our control and we're not sort of um, imprisoned or, or subjected to these, these random laws over which we have no control. This is it's a, actually a beautiful uh, transition. It's, and it's something that we need to eventually understand and accept. And you you refer to this then in the book as um, as being the guardians of the dream. I think that's such an evocative title. Yeah, yeah. That's really that's really what it is. I mean, I and you could view my book as sort of a thought journey. I mean, I, I think, you know, in many of the drafts, I'm sure I had a chapter or two or some lines talking about the thought journey hypothesis. And I think I kept some of that in the book where I say, you know, even if you don't accept this, just hold on and just give this some thought because here's another way of looking at things. And if you look at the world as a projection of consciousness, then the natural question is, well, where did that where did consciousness come from where did this ability to project a reality come from and my answer to that is we'll never know we are riding the wings of a miracle and so that's where so we are guardians of this most amazing of all miracles we we haven't appreciated it uh, because we are so we're we're so caught up in just accepting things as this given to us as if you know this 
this is a perfectly natural thing to have an organized universe. You know, it just happens all the time. But when you really think about it, this is, you know, meditation does this, frankly, to just ponder, isn't this amazing that we're even here? I mean, all the great religious texts say the same thing. You know, they say in the Koran, one of the, you know, the lines of the Koran is something along the lines of, you know, God has given great things to mankind, but most people don't appreciate it. It's something, you know, very basic stuff like that. So, so I think that, so the Guardians of the Dream is, is saying we, we have been given this gift and it's our job to guard it, to protect it, not to destroy it. And that's, and that's really what, what, I, what I've learned from my own journey is that that's where things end with this responsibility to be the shepherd of this planet However corny that sounds, that's where it ends up. So, you know, and it's better if we sort of give with the program sooner rather than later because, you know, as I like to say, time's a wasting. We might as well get this done right so we can all benefit from it. Yeah, and I've always, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly agnostic, so I don't know whether I believe in past and future lives, but if you at least think that reincarnation might be a possibility, you might have to come back to the planet in 100 years' time, so isn't it a good idea to leave it in a better state than you found it? Right, 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 right. And I, I'm also agnostic on um, the afterlife and reincarnation. I mean, I tell people that we know we're here right now. There's no doubt about it. We are living right now. We have 100% certainty. I don't have 100% certainty of it after life, and I don't have 100% certainty of reincarnation. Maybe some people do, but I think if you took a poll, it'd be less than 100%. So let's go with what we've got here. <laughs> exactly. Well, I've got to tell you, I've got to tell you that I went on a past life regression course, and spontaneously I started to see past and future lives in people's auras. And even with that super sensibility, I still don't know whether I actually believe it or maybe I'm just seeing some other phenomena because the scientist in me uh, says the jury's still out on that. But and, and it's something I found I can teach any other human being to do as well. So it's something which is in all of us. And if we actually, funny enough, it, um, it works over Skype too, which is kind of uncanny. But I've got to ask you another question, which is, I, I don't know how to phrase this, but I want to ask... I wanted to get the Philip Camilla version of this answer. So I always ask guests on the on the Zone show what they do to get in the zone when they're really super creative and productive. But I think asking you that question is a bit simplistic because uh, you've got a, a large brain and what to tap into. So when you're in the zone, what does that mean about your mind in the context of the greater mind? Well, I, I read a little bit about this in your own book and on your, on your website, and I would agree with where you were going, which is that what I do is, is I just remove all doubt from my mind, and I think openly. I remove history, baggage, at least I try to, uh, and, and I... I ponder the wide open spaces of the of the mind. And I do think that when you go that direction, when you open your mind, you are opening yourselves up to more than just your little brain. You are opening yourself up to the freedom and the creativity of the one mind. 
I mean, I, I wrote a, I wrote an article for Veritas a couple of years ago. It was called "Plugging into the Power Grid of the Universal Mind," and it was sort of the same thing, where some of the great spiritual and even and and scientific achievements have been because people did plug in to the universal mind. And and you know, there's a section in my book about the athlete zone. A lot of people have written have written, have, have written about it. Where it is sort of like this phase where all of a sudden you're more in control of your world than you are than you normally are. All of a sudden you've entered this phase where everything starts happening in sequence, in in, in synchronicity, and that I think is when you are in the flow of the universal mind. And frankly, Tom, I think the the challenge is coming up with a description of that that sounds more scientific as opposed to as opposed to new age but i think that the our terminology will eventually eventually adapt uh, but that's that's my answer to the question so i so if you were to reincarnate and come back in 2115 what world would you like to come back to what would it look like well, I I see things gradually moving towards a this consciousness-based worldview. I think that that's where things are heading. Uh, some people I've said this to think I'm crazy, but most, but a lot of people I talk to on my own radio show um, think that this is true. This is where things are heading. And as as you move towards that perspective, you start breaking down the barriers between religion, between the religions. And you start unifying the belief systems, and then you, then you um, sort of take down the material science and imagine if the notion that we are one mind or a part of God or part of one spiritual spiritual essence, if that becomes ingrained as deeply as the law of gravity, imagine what we can do. And so I see us in a hundred years moving towards. A, a true world community where where we're moving towards that point where we're celebrating life as opposed to uh, suffering the drudgeries of of life the religious strife the political tension you know and, and I it, it's probably going to take more than a hundred years but I see this gradually moving towards um, as I say in my book a heaven on earth I mean this is what I think this is all about making this this world resemble a, a heaven as opposed to a world of turmoil that we're currently living in. So I, I see a lot of hope. That is a lovely, lovely sentiment. So, Philip, um, what, can you tell us a little bit about the next book that's coming out? Yeah, the next book, uh, the working title is called Revolution, How Really to Change the World. And it is a shorter book. It's, it's um, written as my attempt to make this whole approach as simple as possible, sort of set up like like lectures. Um, and it's all about seeing the world in a new way. I think that revolution comes uh, not when we change political systems, but when we change the way we look at the world. And so, so it really is um, my attempt to be as down-to-earth and practical with a lot of these ideas uh, you know, the collapse of materialism is the foundation for this because that's – I had to do that first because that lays the sort of the um, authoritative intellectual foundation 
but now I'm going to try to put it into more and more sim simple terms for the readers. So that's what I'm doing. So, Philip, will you come back on The Zone Show when the new book's out? I'd be happy to. Happy to, Tom. And where's the best place for people to find more details about you and where they can find the book? Okay, so I have, my website is thecollapseofmaterialism.com, and, and Amazon's Amazon seems to be the best place to find the book. And I have my own radio show. Uh, it's called Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. It's on webtalkradio.net and iTunes. And maybe I could convince you to be on the show at some point. Um, so, oh, I'd love that. That would be a real honor. Thank you. So, so that would be fun. And so that, that's the best way. And if, pe if people want to communicate with me directly, my, uh, my email address is philipcamella at gmail.com. I'd be happy to answer any questions about some of the things I get into today. So thank you for that. Fantastic. Well, Philip, um, keep shining your light. Um, if, it, if it's any help at all, I think you're right. Oh, that means something. That means a lot. That means something. Exactly. And, uh, you know, but I also think that um, material science is brilliant as well. We've got some great things as a result of it. And uh, and I think that we, we're, we're, in a, we're in a situation where one and one can make three. Right. And, and the Zone Show is all about having intelligent conversations where it's not skeptic against believer. So there's any scientists out there that want to come on the Zone Show and put their view across too and discuss all this stuff come along if anyone wants to put someone in an mri scanner i.e me who can do this stuff so i can tune out of time i can see see backwards and forwards in time i can connect uh with the with the collective mind on demand uh i'm not a buddhist monk or anything like that i've not spent uh, years and years in, in caves i'm an electronic engineer who chanced across this stuff and call me up and i'd be glad to go and do this and research this and find out a bit more about this wonderful opportunity that we've got in front of us philip Thanks so much for sharing your wisdom, and I look forward to when you're back on the Zone Show soon. Thanks a lot, Tom. It's, it's been great talking to you. I'm looking forward to following up on both of our shows. Take care of yourself. Fantastic. Take care. Take care. So thanks for listening to the Zone Show. If you pop over to my website, www.tomevans.co, you'll find loads of books and resources that will help you get in and stay in the zone and allow you to bring what looks like magic in to this wonderful new era. So what is the collapse of materialism all about? Well, it's really a collapse of a way of looking at the world that is not working anymore. So it's sort of like fighting our way through a thicket of ideas, conditioning beliefs, historical ideas that we're fighting ourselves through this thicket and we're attached so deeply to some of them such as Darwinian evolution or the Big Bang Theory or the notion that we're descended from the apes and we're just sort of fighting our way through but over time I hope we realize that materialism the notion that all that really exists is matter and motion that that does not explain the world. And the more you think about it, the more it just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And this is something that I think is going to be a gradual change. It's hard to beat somebody over the head with a new idea to make them believe. I think it's a slow process of understanding, learning, growing. And if I'm on the right track, and if others like me who have these ideas are on the right track, then eventually this grand edifice we call materialistic science is going to collapse and it's inevitable because I really think when all is said and done the truth ultimately 
prevails and it's simply a matter of waiting for the power of truth to show itself. This is Philip Camella. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. Thank you for listening to this unique show that we have today. Thank you.